everybody from Deconstructor Fun. I'm Joseph Kim. In Twig 53, we will be covering four articles. The first is Everything Riot Announced for League of Legends 10th Anniversary by VentureBeat. The second is The Four Features That Matter on PS5 and Five That Don't by GamesBeat. The third is Call of Duty is the biggest mobile game launch ever with 100 million downloads from The Verge. And the fourth is Call of Duty Modern Warfare post-launch approach to new content, which was a blog post from Activision. On the podcast today, we have myself, Eric Kress, Mishka Katkoff, Adam Telfer, and we will be joined by special guest Paul Beleza, who is actually working on one of the new games announced by Riot. And before we jump into the podcast, I also wanted to get a message out to any potential advertisers. So if you are interested in advertising on the Deconstructor of Fun podcast, we have just recently put together a a media deck, including some case studies of performance from previous ads that we have run on this podcast. So please reach out to me if you are interested. You can reach out to me on Twitter at J-O-K-I-M-1. You can also reach me via email at jk at gamemakers.com. And without further ado, let's jump into the podcast right now. All right. And welcome, 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 everybody. Uh, we're back here with the whole crew plus one. So before we come in with a, with a plus one, uh, we want to say a couple of things about previous episode that, that went live, um, went live early morning today. So we recorded an episode with, with Raya's Chief Diversity Officer, Angela. And it was, uh, JK, what do you think about the, uh, the episode that we recorded? It was really good. I got to say, I honestly think it was, as, as I mentioned before, our best podcast yet. So definitely check that out. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the topics are difficult. We talk about culture transformation. Uh, we talk about Riot's past year where it kind of began to transform the culture and how that was done. And even though th- this sounds like a very, I mean, it, it is a difficult topic. Uh, the conversation is fun. Like that, that podcast episode is really good. I've listened to it a couple of times and it's just, there's a lot of knowledge on how to drive culture, how to transform culture. And just, it was just overall good. You guys talk about NFL and that kind of stuff. So it's, it's a good episode, but our plus ones, we have another guest again from Riot. This one is apparently JK's favorite rioter. So JK, you can have the honors of introducing your favorite rioter. (laughs) All right. So today we've got Paul Beleza, who is actually from Riot. And uh, we're going to be talking about more about some of the announcements from Riot later today. So we'll be able to get uh, some of Paul's insights into some of those projects and actually the project that he's working on. But Paul, could you first just kind of do a quick introduction in terms of who you are and what you're working on at Riot? And don't uh, yeah. do quick. Don't do the full introduction, Paul. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Well, first, so my name's Paul Beleza. I'm a senior producer and product manager at Riot Games. Um, first, I got to shout out to you guys. Like, I've been listening to the show for about a year now, and I've learned so much and met a lot of cool people because of it. So, uh, big fan, and I'm so honored to be here. So, thank you all. And I look forward to getting crest in the face uh, later in this episode. Really, really good times. Um, so, uh, I... I'll just do the super TLDR of my career. Uh, I started out as a high school biology teacher uh, in early 2000s and decided I wanted to go into video games because I love video games more than teaching, although teaching was cool. And so I started at rock bottom, quit my teaching job, started out working in retail, 
at EB Games, which then became GameStop. And my students would come in and be like, what the, what the hell happened to you? And I'm like, I'm chasing my dreams. Um, anyhow, that job allowed me to meet some humans in QA at the Vendi Universal, where I took a QA job for a year and got my first real taste of working in the industry. So I worked on like Barbie and the Magic of Pegasus and paid my dues down in QA. Uh, eventually I decided I needed to gain more skills. So I really wanted to become a developer, not just a publishing side person. So I decided to go to USC and, and mid-2000s for their uh, graduate program in interactive media and game design. And I ended up becoming a, kind of like a student game producer on projects there and, and during that time. Uh, eventually I decided I needed to get an internship if I wanted to really get to the industry and, and learn skills and add value. So I applied to a Craigslist ad for an office manager position at a young uh, startup in West Los Angeles. And I got an email back from a guy named Mark Merrill uh, and the company was USC, uh, <laughs> the company is not USC, he was a USC alumni. The company was called Riot Games. And uh, I came in and talked to them very early on when they were pitching what would eventually become League of Legends. And uh, I was not offered the office manager position because I was a student in school, but they offered me an internship. So I was Riot's first intern and employee number six. So I was there working on uh, what was, it was called Hero Wars at the time internally. Uh, we worked on that until it became League of Legends. I left in 2008 to go make my own game with friends. We started an indie company and made a puzzle game with uh, 2K. We published that. And after I finished doing that project and, and doing a few more projects, I returned to Riot in 2010, a year after League had started. And I spent uh, about nine years working on League of Legends post-launch. And I did everything from, I was the lead champion producer for three years. So oversaw 54 champion releases in my time. I worked on uh, in-game events and publishing activities for about two years. Then I did two years of uh, skins and monetization content. And then I finished off my time on League running the store and loot team to really understand more about how the business worked and to, to learn how to work with engineering teams. I mostly worked with creative teams. And then in January of this year, I joined Project A, which is our uh, tactical first-person shooter that we announced, and uh, just do my best to add value wherever I can to the company and for players. So here I am talking to you guys now. That was definitely a Mishka intro, for sure. <laughs> Sorry, dude. <laughs> just kidding. Very cool. What? <laughs> Eric, you got an update? Oh, so I missed last podcast. So I just wanted to quickly say that uh, the article was a bit misleading about Android only driving 33% of the revenue of, of the, I don't know, mobile. Because at the end of the day, they don't track mo uh, Android in China. Um, and, and if you actually just pull out China and look at the West, it's more like 45, 55. So it's more like a correction in the sense that Android is delivering almost as much revenue. Because initially, like, you know, four or five years ago, it was only like 20 to 25%. And it's steadily growing to very close to iOS. So I just wanted to make that correction since I wasn't here to correct you then. Yeah. So it's basically, you're talking about the article from last week that was about the relative revenue uh, contribution from iOS relative to Android, right? Right, right. Okay, well, let's jump right in. First article that we want to cover is everything Riot announced for League of Legends 10th anniversary, and this was from VentureBeat. And so this is the biggest article by far, in my opinion, for the week, and for some people, quite possibly, of the last decade. Uh, so on the 10th anniversary of League of Legends, Riot announced a bunch of new games from the studio, 
And the games that were announced were not only for, for console PC, but also for mobile. And the first game to talk about is League of Legends Wild Rift, which is a mobile version of League of Legends that will be launching in 2020. And open betas for this are, are beginning soon if anyone is interested. Uh, the second game was Teamfight Tactics heading to mobile. So uh, we, actually, we actually called this one on, on this podcast, so glad we were right on that one. Next is Project A, which is a tactical shooter. It's described in the article as a mix between Overwatch, Rainbow, Six Siege, and Counter-Strike Go. Next is Project L, which is a League of Legends-themed fighting game. Uh, after that, uh, Legends of Runeterra, which is Riot's card battle game. It seems like it's similar to Hearthstone or, or Magic the Gathering. And finally, the other project announced in that article is Project F, which it's, it wasn't clear what Project F was, but the article states that it kind of looks similar to Diablo. And besides that, there seems to be other projects even outside of games. So for example, Netflix also released uh, League of Legends Origins, a, a documentary following the game's ascent and dominance. And the good news for us today is that we have Paul here to help us think about this news and to try and get some more information about what's happening at, uh, at Riot. So Paul, you know, really excited to have you here, really excited about the launch of these games. And I just want to take you off the hook a bit because, you know, we, we don't want to, <laughs> so, you know, you don't have to tell us anything confidential. Feel free to just say, hey, you can't talk about it, or, you know, you can kind of give us the, the corporate double speak type of thing. <laughs> you know, we're kind well, of don't, Hey, Joseph, don't worry. He's got his like PR watchdog right there <laughs> with a shock collar. So the minute he says something, he can't say he's going to get shocked. So just prepare for that. You seem really mean. <laughs> So maybe the first question for you, Paul, is in terms of the, the product announcements, can, can you kind of talk to us about, you know, why did it take 10 years for Riot to launch more games? Or at least besides, you know, there was that Blitzcrank game like five years ago, but <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be great to hear more about what's been happening behind the scenes yeah. at Riot. Uh, sure, of course. Uh, so I think uh, a couple things to just lay out in terms of the land, right? So it being League's 10-year anniversary seemed like a really opportune moment to really um, to focus on on the players of League and, and around the ecosystem. Be like, let's how do we surprise and delight everybody here in a way um, beyond their expectations? Because you know, we, our our community jokes at us as being Rito game, you know, and then that's in the industry. And even on this podcast, I've heard it go, "These guys, when are these guys gonna ever get anything else out?" And that's to be fair, right? Like, it's true, right? It's, we're not we're not the type to really announce anything until we're really have demonstrable proof that we have something we think is going to be valuable. And we've had a lot of uh, starts and stops in the past 10 years. We've killed a lot of things. Um, I think uh, we got close at some point to, to releasing other stuff. I think at one point we had, uh, we talked about this in your podcast, uh, Joe, uh, we had a card game that almost came out that we decided to kill based off learnings from other games in the space. And just, we weren't ready for it. So, uh, so let's, Figure one is like 10 year anniversary, good time to, to drop a lot of information, create special. Um, two things, um, we've had starts and stops and just haven't been something, haven't had something we feel truly is good and valuable to the player base and to the community. And third, I think we've had to learn. We've had to learn and gain a lot of capabilities in terms of how we scale up and do this, right? We have learned a lot from running League of Legends from 10 years, live ops, you know, how to build tech at scale, how to serve a community on a, on a very quick basis. But like, 
uh, that is different from making games and making games is hard. So I think uh, we're finally at a point where we've reprioritized how we're making games and rethought what's the right approach and revamped our R&D efforts to be much more streamlined and focused around, you know, getting to a game thesis quicker versus just, uh, just, you know, just kind of roaming, roaming around. Uh, so all those learnings together have kind of put us at a point where we're finally ready to say, I think we, we can talk about these things and have confidence that we can deliver them. Whereas before uh, we're still figuring it out. Got it. And you are working on project A, right? Mm-hmm. Can you give us a little bit more details in terms of, you know, all the secret stuff that, that Joe Hickson doesn't want you to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. Uh, so Project A is a, a tactical character-based first-person shooter. Um, it takes place on Earth. Uh, so it's a different, it's our first IP that's not League of Legends specific. Uh, and we did that on purpose because part of how we approach our games is we have to make sure that the IP fits the genre we're going for and like delivers on the promise of what that game could be. So, you know, after exploring a lot of things, we decided, you know, if we really want to execute well in this kind of genre, then we need to, to be able to attack the gameplay problems and the player needs. And we didn't want to necessarily limit ourselves by the IP in order to do that. So in making sure it uh, was different, we're able to, I think, create something truly special for that audience. And, uh, we're hyper-focused on making sure, and you, and you can see this from the video, that we're listening to the needs of people who play these types of games. Like we, we emphasize like yeah, anti-cheat and uh, you know uh, movement detection and peekers advantage and stuff that's like really hardcore, you know? And it just goes to show you that like, in addition to just thinking of making, attacking certain genres, we're really listening to people who, who spend thousands of hours in them to understand what their problems are and give and deliver what they need to make something truly special for them. And, and in essence, that helps lift everybody up. So um, that's that's the game I've been working on. I'm on the character team there. So I'm in charge of making sure that the, the characters that we're making help deliver on that gameplay promise. And that's been a really fun project to work on so far. Right. And just to get you in a little bit of trouble at Riot with your coworkers, could you tell us about what your favorite project is? The, the ones that no, I'll, say, I'll say it out right. It's TFT Mobile. You know, I want to sit down and play that shit. And, and, the, and the moment, like, it became a thing, I went to, like, the head producer, and I'm like, so when can I play this on my couch? Because I don't always want to sit at my desk. I sit at my desk at work. I don't really want to sit at my desk at home. Can I please? And there's, like, refangering it out, relax. I'm like, okay, okay, cool. So, yeah. Great. And then I think for a lot of people, there's a lot of interest in terms of how things work at Riot. And from like a new game development process perspective, it'd be great if you could just tell us a little bit about how does that actually work at Riot in terms of like who comes up up with the ideas and how the green light process kind of works over there? No, no, of course. So um, we've done a lot of revamping of how we do this in the past years. I think we've gotten a lot more focus in the past two years in particular as we've actually solidified a repeatable noble process for this but in essence anyone can pitch a, a game idea at riot uh, there are definitely a set of criteria that when you pitch people need to go through such as identifying what's the key gameplay thesis like what are you bringing that will serve that potential audience and that genre um what's the business case right like what's the potential what's our like, capability analysis like really really good diligence on like hey, sure, you got a good idea, but like, what is truly unique about it? How does it deliver player needs? 
what's the business opportunity and like what, how, how well suited are we to execute on it? And that's like step one. And then as you go through different phases, you can kind of get greenlit to a small prototype. And if you get greenlit to a small prototype, you'll uh, could potentially get greenlit into pre-production where you're figuring out cool. You have a vertical slice that is fun or cool. How, how do you actually execute this uh, at scale or whatever? And you have to pass through this diligence phase which has been really helpful in focusing everything that we're doing across the board. So I particularly appreciate it because it it gives you it gives you a good it just lets you figure out what you need to spend your energy on versus not, which is right. I think on the Riot website, at least a few years ago, there was a video about some kind of game jam where like a bunch yeah. of employees were like building a bunch of prototypes, and I think the winner of that game jam was like a fighting game. Was that the origin of Project L? <laughs> No, no, okay. <laughs> no. So those, those, those are company game jams that we do just to uh, like the intent of it. It's usually called Thunderdome, and the intent is like, hey, take take a couple of days to just do something really innovative for players. So uh, for traditionally on League, we use that to kind of in like fast improve small quality of life changes, and it blew up into just make really cool ideas and big game, basically game jam or idea jam. So we've done a lot of those. Um, and those games were, were made by passionate writers in a short amount of time, but they're mostly just, um, uh, if, for sure, probably one of them could potentially become a product if we wanted to, but for the most part, those are just ways for people to collaborate and make something cool together in a short time. Project L uh, was made, um, and it's been a long time coming. We acquired a studio, a studio called Radiant uh, in Northern California several years ago, and uh, Radiant was known for working on a, 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 a small fighter uh, named um, Rising Thunder. And it was a, a really kind of a, a attack, on, not an attack, but like an attempt at really kind of smooth out some of the problems that that studio saw in the fighting game genre. And uh, we uh, we worked with them and just saw that we had a lot of shared values and how to approach um, game development in general and just core community serving values. So and, and also the founders of that studio founded Evo, the fighting game um kind of tournament and community gathering that happens once a year. So there's just a lot of similarities of how to approach and serve an audience. And so we partnered with them many years ago and they've been cooking, cooking that project for a a long time with their capabilities and passion for the genre. So that's how that project came to be. All right. Got it. Okay. Hey, so let's open it up. Eric, uh, you've got a few comments. Yeah. You know, I'll start with the positives. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> at least for me, like, uh, I'm very excited and I'm sure the, your audience is super excited about what you guys are doing. And so, uh, you know, it's finally, after all these years, we're going to see some new games from Riot, uh, which I think people have been anticipating for a long time. Um, they certainly are making games. All these games have been successful in the marketplace. So I think, you know, they are targeting uh, the right type of genres that also leverages their own IP. And again, you know, leveraging their brand across all these projects makes a lot of sense. Um, and they're basically looking like they're stealing directly out of Blizzard's playbook, right? With Hearthstone, Overwatch, Diablo even. That was a little bit of a shocker, to be honest. Um, and of course, League of Legends on mobile made sense in China five years ago. So it makes <laughs> sense now. <laughs> but, you know, let's see if uh, if they can execute against Arena Valor now that they've kind of taken all the share. So. I mean, if anybody can do it, I'm sure you guys can do it. Um, so on the on the negative side, you know, I didn't really see much innovation going on. Like I, I saw a lot of uh, iterative type games that that have been done before. Uh, so 
that may be a challenge to differentiate um, your 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 products. Um, I don't know if League of Legends actually on mobile on 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 console makes any sense. Uh, you know, there's a huge platform control mismatch and audience mismatch to some degree. Uh, the mobile game probably makes sense in China. Not really sure how the MOBAs are faring in, in the West. I mean, so far the MOBAs in the West have been kind of disastrous, but um, perhaps you know they can break through there. Um, and the fighting game, uh, you know, the fighting genre has been kind of on the ropes for a long time. Now, Mortal Kombat's doing extremely well this this year, uh, but generally speaking, the, the the fighting genre has been in decline for um, decades. So, I'm not sure there's a room <laughs> for that game out there. But I, I mean, I could be wrong. But it's 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 a tough genre. It's kind of d dominated by Street Fighter and and Mortal Kombat, and um, and obviously things like uh, Super Smash Brothers, which some consider a fighting game. Um, what else can I say? But you know, the biggest thing that that worries me about all of this, and I've said this on the podcast before, so I'm trying to be consistent here, is cannibalization, right? So this has happened so many times; it's like a broken record. You know, Zynga of old, Supercell, Rovio—they all release new games to their big, huge audiences, and uh, they make less money because at the end of the day, League of Legends mints money, right? And let's say they're you know twelve to thirteen to fourteen, fifteen percent. Uh, conversion let's say they're making like forty dollars per user if they end up making a game that makes five dollars per user then it's going to be a train wreck right so if they move that audience from a forty dollar game to a five dollar game they're going to just lose money and that's exactly what happened to clash clash of clans guys you know when clash of clans makes like twenty dollars per user and clash royale makes five dollars per user and so when they moved moved these players over they were went from $1.6 billion a year to $1 billion a year, which isn't terrible, but it's not great. So that's what my biggest concern is of all these projects, is I, I, I really kind of doubt that they will be able to generate as much revenue as uh, what, what League has accomplished. And so that creates a huge cannibalization issue, potentially. And then finally, you know, in history, you know, generally studios that have had lots of success with one game find it really hard to pivot and do different games. And now you're making five <laughs> different <laughs> games, which would be a challenge just to make one new successful game. So, you know, that, that creates a little bit of like, you know, the hair on my back of my neck rising as, as I worry about. <laughs> what, I worry what, about that too, man. <laughs> the execution risk is, seems daunting at, 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 at yeah. best. So, um, yeah. so that's kind of my general comments. I, 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 I have no doubt that your audience will follow wherever you go. I think managing that audience and making sure that you guys don't cannibalize yourself to death uh, will will be a, a key part in, in in ensuring success. And then obviously, you know, just the pure execution of these games because expectations from the audience is still super high on these games because they've all been done before, right? So, um, so the quality level is going to be high in order to convert and get people engaged. So. That's kind of my take. Anybody else want to comment? Yeah, I can take it over from from here. I mean, Eric said a lot of the things that I've I've put in my notes as well. So <clears throat> I've seen actually one of the game being played. One of our guys got a beta to Legends of Frontera, and um, it yeah, it, it definitely looked a lot like Hearthstone. It looked really cool, and I would most definitely play it. But what Eric is saying is absolutely correct in the sense of the low monetization because when i look at the uh these games that are coming out you know team fight tactics the tactical shooter uh the fighting game the card game all of these have pretty low monetization potential usually 
uh, with, you know, we've, we've seen what, what Hearthstone can do. It's a very content driven game. I don't know with fighting games monetization other than contest of champions, but I don't think you're going to go that deep into the gotcha loop and power progression with the overwatch. The monetization is quite low in the sense. And, and as well as with team fight tactics, what I've seen so far, it's mainly the skins, which again, puts it into low monetization. Now with league of legends coming in for, for mobile, that's, that's naturally big but at the same time we've seen arena of valor and what it can do um it's it's been great in china but really hasn't had success in the west despite adding supermans and jokers and you name it kind of everything and and trying everything and just doesn't seem like the mobas resonate at, at the same scale in 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 the uh in the west and also the monetization is a little bit you know a suspect because it's it's just not a power progression type of game uh, I didn't notice the action RPG, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit unaware of that. And that might be something with a much more heavier power progression. But again, it's a game uh, much like Diablo, and they're working on their, on their, way, on their version with NetEase. So, so much like Eric said, a lot of it is, is something that, um, that kind of you know, resembles Blizzard's portfolio. And, and in that sense... Uh, it's both good and bad. Uh, good in the sense because everybody loves Blizzard and people love Riot, uh, but bad in the sense that there's somebody else with with quite similar capabilities working on uh, same same type of stuff with with as strong if not even stronger kind of characters. So it boils down to execution. And my questions are more about the execution. So as Eric said, there's a lot of new things you're trying out, and Riot has. Um, a- unlimited execution capabilities i mean you have all the money coming in you have the best location you can hire anybody you can you can get anything going on and paul as you were describing your process starts with anyone can pitch which is pretty great i think you have like uh two and a half thousand people so there's a lot of a lot of players and a lot of people who can who can pitch uh you and it's not just a pitch like hey i have a great idea you talk about the gameplay thesis the business case so you really have to think about about this as a as a as a product as a service and then you go into the prototyping and the diligence phase so my questions are more about who are the decision makers and how do you staff up as the project goes and where do you start off like what are the team sizes at the start and i'm asking like who is decision maker because a lot of the things you're doing are um you you would basically look at the slate and be like yeah that makes sense so it's not, you know, out of the box. It's just, yeah, it, it, it totally makes sense. So and then it feels like you have very sensible people making decisions. So I'm just try, trying to figure out, like, is that good or bad? And, and, um, and yeah, how, how does it work? So who yeah. are the decision makers? How do you staff up? And what are the team sizes? Yeah, so there's an R&D council, and it's a cross-functional council of uh, executive leadership, um, both from the business perspective, the game design perspective, you know, art and creative perspective, and they evaluate um, all the pitches. Usually you get one of them to sponsor. So you start with the initial, like, hey, I have an idea. And you start talking in depth with one of them and just give them the the high level. And one of them will become like kind of your mentor through the process. So kind of already at the start are kind of set up in a way to to be very collaborative with them from the beginning. And so then, like I said, deep dive diligence phase and basically kind of a soft paper pitch about everything you're trying to do. And you got to be, you got to get your, uh, your, your ducks in a row for that one. Cause you got to really think through all the problems because it's not just snap a finger, get something done. So say you get through that um, and you get funding, you start small, 
you're going to start with a very, very small prototype. You probably one or two people, maybe three at most, to really get to a, a, a paper prototype or a, or a digital prototype using whatever tools we have available to do so. Um, kind of then it's really about testing with a small, uh, I, I think, I don't know if this is for sure, but um, you're going to be doing testing with a small group of rioters and probably a little bit of real players from, from the, from the potential target audience to really mm -hmm. get through. Are you solving some of these problems? And then in each phase, each kind of revision, you're, you're learning in real time, Hey, this is actually fulfill what we think we need to do. And if not, what are the things we need to solve to do it? And if, and are those things like super, super challenging or are they approachable mm -hmm. with more time, et cetera? So you're going through this phases and you're checking in with this council as you go through all of the steps. And I'm um, looking at Joe McGoin, does that sound right? Uh, okay, so Joe's giving me a thumbs up. Yes, that is accurate. And just make it up. So yes, so that's, that's typically how it goes now. In the past, it was much more uh, uh, feels-based and mm -hmm. I'd say laissez-faire to be honest, but we've since tightened up our approach about that to be much more diligent. All right. So uh, that, that makes total sense. So it's kind of like, uh, like Creativity Inc. where they had the brain trust. So it kind of um, resembles yeah. that type of Pixar approach, right? Yes, a bit. A bit of that, yeah. All right. That sounds, sounds I mean, I know Eric has his, his, his worries. I, I, I'm more positive than Eric. <laughs> I just have to say that I, they look good. Like, I don't want to be you know, too much of a fanboy, but the games look actually really good. So I wouldn't be that worried about the execution. It's more of the, uh, the competitive landscape. Certainly. And I think Eric's points are, are, you know, that's some good criticism. I think those are yeah. real challenges that we're going to have to think through. Like, you know, making a good game is part of it, but servicing it and making it viable is also part of it too. And that's hard. Game development is hard. Monetization for game development is hard in a way that feels good, mm -hmm. you know, and it's good for the player and good for the business. That's a hard thing to do. And I think, uh, I think we're going to try our best with that, with that framework in mind. It's like our, our monetization framework is, does it feel good for players to spend money, right? Mm -hmm. And that's been it's been true for us so far. But it's I don't think it's I think it's naive of us to think like that's all it takes. You have to be really really smart and in tune with your community, and our communities will let us know if they don't like what we're doing. And so that ability to pivot and react to their feedback has been very critical for us to evolve and and improve on things. But like it, it's it's a tough space out there. It's red ocean everywhere. So we're going to have to, as you guys say, prove it through. Uh, our capabilities and that's that's for that's us to fuck up on to be honest that's us to lose so we just right. have to be good about it hey paul mm -hmm. now you scared me even more <laughs> when you're when you're catering to your community and making sure they feel good about what to spend on that makes me really worried that's just not the way the free-to-play works frankly you know and I, 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 maybe for you guys i think for you and i think for blizzard perhaps but like i don't know man <laughs> Some of these, like, if you think think about, uh, we, we, I think we talked about it last podcast, like uh, NBA 2K is got like a 0.7 user score, right? Because of their insane free-to-play mechanics on that game. But yet that game is up like 20, 25% year over year, right? Because people are just, and, and both both on the game itself as well as on on um, uh, the uh, free-to-play stuff. So um, my my whole thinking is that like, your monetization design process on league is not likely going to work on these other types of games. You have to rethink it and, and see what, what, what's typical for uh, these style of games. And Adam actually probably can, again, I always defer to him because he's much smarter than I am, but um, 
But anyway, that that that, that comment kind of scares me even more a little bit. So I just want I'm going to throw that out there and and uh, let let Adam take over. Oh, if it scares you, it means you care, <laughs> and I appreciate it, Eric. <laughs> yeah. But but why? I mean, Supercell has the same type of approach. Right. So why does that scare? You know, Supercell makes tons of money and they have kind of the same things that riot has going for them they have the base audience the the fans for clash of clans and 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 other games and 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 they have the cash flow the time which which gives them the time to iterate so why would that not hear what i just said like yeah (laughs) but they went from 1.7 billion to (laughs) 1 billion they were are down 40 percent in revenue right i mean that look they are super successful they're one of the best developers on the Mm -hmm. uh, in the world but like if they were a public company, they would have gotten annihilated, right? And 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 they they lived within the ten cent fold, and I guess so does Riot. But like, you know, that's not. I I would not define that as success, or uh, in my view, anyway. And so that's this is what they have to worry about, right? Because they're mm-hmm. minting money at Riot, and all of a sudden they come out with a game they can't monetize as well, and they move all their players over, and they're down forty percent year on year. You know, that's scary, right? So I, that's what that's that's what I'm trying to say, and. And again, monetization design, as Adam knows, is different for each genre, and they have to optimize against the the genre, not optimize against what the players expect. You know, in my view. Yeah, fair, fair point. Fair point. All yeah. right, Adam, what, what you got? <laughs> oh man, no, it's all my hard hitting <laughs> questions. Okay, hard hitting question number one, Paul. Mm. Uh, for the promo of your game, why are you staring at a box? because box shooters are fun man uh no i mean i think we were we're just not ready to show more just yet and we really wanted to establish the gameplay versus necessarily what the world the environment looked like and there's more than just a couple boxes on screen but you know and you know we're we got a lot of work to do ahead of us so i think we we wanted to err on showing um you know uh what we could about the characters and how like the gameplay interacts and you will be crouching behind boxes. So it's not untrue. So I think we just kind of optimize for what the game thesis is versus, versus uh, anything else. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to see how these games develop, right? Like, of course you guys can't say much here and you can't say much during the announcement. Um, but yeah, like really coming to that gameplay thesis, I'm really trying to figure out like what, what are you guys trying to f- use for differentiation in each one of these games right because as we've said like you know blizzard has tried to reinvent many of these genres um many times um and walking into these genres especially into say the shooter space you've got some amazing developers there um, that have been working on these problems for decades um so what i'm really thinking about is this gameplay thesis idea that you've been talking about um and this directly impacts kind of my day-to-day when we're thinking about product strategy and you're talking about you know like developing a tactical shooter where it's solely focused on, say, feedback or problems that a thousand plus hours or uh, players are actually facing. Um, I'm just wondering, is that kind of the limit of, of your gameplay thesis? You just, you just focus at that tip of the spear type of player, or how do you define what a good gameplay Got it. is? Got it. Definitely not. We, 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 look at, uh, we look at our base as segments, uh, like kind of persona. So there's definitely like different kind of targets that you want to make sure you're solving problems for. So like one because we really want like the thesis to be authentically rooted in the problems of that space for a variety of players. So I think like the deepest level players, you definitely want to, you know, um, make sure you solve the problems because they're going to be the people who are championing your product at like the most competitive levels, which then brings in anyone who's interested in, let's say a competitive multiplayer game. You're like, wow, the competitive integrity of the design is there from the beginning. I, there's no pay to pay to 
pay for power. Not to say that's a bad design, but just like in a competitive game, fairness and skill is important. So making sure that like that cohort is, is, is excited and, and able to look at it as like truly solving the problem is important. Then there's ways to like make it more viable for people who would want to try, but have been, um, have been like turned off by some of the walled gardens, in my opinion, of some of these spaces. Like it takes a lot to break through and earn the skills to like be competitive in some of these spaces. So we're also trying to find ways to make it um, uh, approachable to a bigger group of humans. And that's not to say like, just make it super approachable, but just think through what are the things that are typically having people bounce from, from a product like that and go, all right, what are some small and big things we can do? And like, the onboarding and the way we approach things to make it better. So like it's, it's, it's a bunch of different segments that we're targeting, but we make sure that we clearly know what we're trying to do for those segments versus just go mass. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think my third question here is around like I've been in companies where, you know, games fail quite a bit during those, um, you know, very, very difficult green light stages. And I'm wondering from your perspective, what has been a lot of say the patterns around what reasons games have been failing in the past through those gates? Uh, I'd say not clear game theses. I think some of our attempts were very much like uh, kitchen. Uh, it's how can I say like, we're maybe trying to solve too many problems or, you know, um, or, or, or attacking a genre and really not figuring out what the core need is and, and kind of clomping several needs into the, the attempts at the prototype have been some things we've gone through. Other, other ones have just been like, we just straight up, we just straight up didn't get it right. We just, it was not fun. No matter what we tried, we had good thesis, good thinking, uh, good potential like ways for progression, but just, it wasn't realizing it. So sometimes you got to look at, that project go, maybe you got to put it down or maybe you got to change the cast of characters as in humans who are working on it and, and have fresh eyes approach it. So we've, we've, we've let a few things spin for too long. So we had to kind of take, you know, take a good gut check at ourselves and be like, well, what are we doing? And just stop. And that's been huge for us. The ability to be like, you know, we just need to stop and move on. And that's, that's a big lesson we've learned in the past two years. So. Um, you, this might be difficult to say, but I guess, um, what would be some of the more controversial decisions that you guys had to make, especially on say like late, um, late um, green light meetings, just because like you're, you're going to a council, as you said, yeah, that council hopefully is as you know, expert as possible, but I'm sure they've had to make plenty of controversial decisions. Definitely yeah. very late in production. Uh, we've had some projects in the past that like they had, they were beautiful. They're beautiful looking. They had great art. They had, they had like probably some good core loops in there, but just, just it wasn't gelling. It wasn't gelling right for like the ability to, to bring large groups of humans together in some cases, or just a small like one v one together. Just it just wasn't do it differentiated enough or too close to other products. Like and so some teams worked on some projects for in some cases several months, some close to a year or two, and like it hurts when that when that happens. It, it definitely does. So you know the good news is that everyone everyone who works on one of those is able to take those learnings and hopefully improve for a second shot and goal on that pitch or another pitch, or they, they kind of fold back into the, the greater right ecosystem to help work on the other games we're working on. So nothing's truly a, a net loss there, but there's some feels and, and some people get really caught up in, in what they're trying to achieve. And if it doesn't pan out, it, it sucks, but 
know, at the end of the day, if we're not meeting the needs of the player or the business opportunity is just not there, we're, we're just going to have to cut. Yeah. And I, I guess when you're saying like not gelling, not being fun, this is mainly based on internal riot tests, right? Uh, I think in the past it was more internal riot tests. Now we are definitely doing external tests and having, you know, players and uh, who would be part of the cohort, take a look at it. And that's where the, the real, the real info, in my opinion, is coming from like that target audience going, I don't get it. Or yeah, if I squint, I kind of see that, but it's not there yet. And so we have to tune according to that. Cause at the end of the day, like you put something in front of other humans and they're either going to use it or not or, or play it or not. And that's who we got to serve and not just what we think is cool Although we better have a good opinion of what we think is cool. So. Yeah. Um, I guess my only final thought from Eric's stuff around monetization, et cetera, like we're talking to Riot in terms of them being probably the strongest company in the West as their core companies around selling cosmetics um, and handling that community. So these guys should be able to sell cosmetics in these genres as best as possible. But I think there is um, a risk here of just growing games within the shadow of League of Legends, right? Uh, just how difficult that will be. Um, and hopefully Riot, especially after making these major announcements, are then in for the, the years to come to actually optimize and grow these games. Um, and I'm also kind of, uh, it's good to see that these games are all kind of in adjacent genres, but not in direct competitors. So especially in the case of the tactical shooter, hopefully it will be able to pull audience away from uh, other shooter games and not necessarily uh, cannibalize, uh, cannibalize League of Legends directly. I think yeah, that. I, sorry, Paul. I was just going to say yeah. I'd have to agree with Adam. Like, so, so Eric, I totally agree with you that from a game to game perspective, when we look at games like what what's happened with from Clash of Clans uh, to Clash Royale, like if you go from a high monetization to low monetization type of game, and there, you know, th there is a audience kind of stealing there, then then that could happen. But it just seems to me that, you know, especially when, when Riot's going into mobile with such a big difference from a platform to platform perspective, and then with the different genres, I, I personally don't, I'm not that worried about cannibalization so much. Uh, I just can't see like the hardcore league player that, you know, is playing so much on, on PC, uh, jumping over to a mobile game and then just not monetizing in the, in the same way. So I, I, I personally think that, the cannibalization risk is a lot lower, at least given the current portfolio of, of games, in, in my opinion. Paul, you were gonna say something? Yeah, no, first of all, like all these, all these points I think are valid criticisms and I think they're real challenges. And so I don't want, like, I think at times we come off as a, a very idealistic, and but we do hold to those values. And I think, you know, I think there are times where we have sacrificed business value for player value. And the hope of that has been like uh, creating a, a, a community and a ecosystem that feels pretty good. That said, like we get slammed on league a lot when we try to, you know, find different ways to like monetize. We, we have to strike that balance and revise with them accordingly. So, uh, and, and so there's that. And so I'll, I'll call that as a, a, a truth challenge that we have to face. Um, the second thing is, I think um, the good thing that's up, that we're optimistic about is, I think there's a lot of people who would try uh, League or some of these League-related uh, products, just haven't because like the Mobadrana wasn't their jam, right? And so like uh, what we've seen with TFT, 
which has been really interesting, and I think I can say this, uh, is that uh, a lot of people have tried league that we didn't think would before. And I think what well, the barrier was, was people weren't necessarily into the MOBA, but they kind of liked the universe and the, the characters around it, or at least have seen their friends do it and had an interest. And so what was been really interesting about TFT is just not only has it brought, you know, some old League of Legends players back who've kind of just gotten tired to kind of play in a familiar game space, but it's brought a whole bunch of people who are adjacent into the ecosystem that we were pretty shocked about and we didn't know. And so our hope is that maybe we'll see that across the other products that we do too. By serving different audiences, you might find people who are interested that uh, weren't interested necessarily before. And uh, we've seen dividends from that. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're, we're gonna shoot our shot and try our best. And if it sucks, then we'll iterate and make it better. And if something is just not hitting well for us and the player base, then we'll figure out what to do when the time comes as well. I think we're not shy about, you know, sunsetting things if we need to. We've done that within League a lot. We've sunsetted game modes, for example, all the time, just because it wasn't meeting the player need or, or really viable, so. Yeah, and Paul, I think to your last point, I, I do think that that's a major advantage. and. You know, if I were to guess, if I were to uh, look at uh, the financials of, for a company like Supercell, uh, I mean, just looking at public numbers, uh, generally speaking, for for like a Zynga or a Glue, they're they're spending about you know, I'd say thirty percent of, um, of of net bookings against uh, marketing and user acquisition. Whereas I think for a company like Supercell, my personal guess is it's more like eight to ten percent, which is around where you guys would be, in, in my opinion. So I, I think from a margins perspective you guys definitely have that ability to not have to monetize as much given the extra margin that you guys have because of the issue you just mentioned. Wait and see. We'll see. Yeah. All right. Should we move on? We've uh, spent quite a lot of time on this one. Adam or Eric. Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, get Paul off the hot seat. Um, so the <laughs> is about uh, PS5, uh, you know, the four features that matter and the five that don't. So this is a top, very topical for me because I'm in the process of trying to figure out what next gen means for the public companies and, and trying to figure out if it's a good, good thing, bad thing, neutral, whatever. So uh, this is actually a pretty good article from these guys. And so basically he says what matters is the SSD, which I totally agree. Um, they're going to create an install base, both with Sony and Microsoft that will have SSDs as a standard. So the publishers will be able to optimize against uh, SSD structure, which is, just reduces load times by a lot if you've ever had an SSD at home at, uh, for your PC. But the difference is that, th that, again, because everyone's gonna have an SSD, they can optimize it only for SSDs. So it'll actually be better, even better performance than you get out of SSD on a PC, theoretically, anyway. The second thing is the Ryzen CPU, um, which seems to be both Microsoft and Sony have a really strong processor. Um, and this should enable hardware accelerated ray tracing is the next thing. Um, I, honestly, I have not seen this in action. And it, 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 it's actually a real fault of my own that I have not upgraded my, my card to like see what ray tracing is all about. People swear by it. It sounds really gimmicky to me, but then I see I see the what it looks like, sort of. But uh, I, I, it should be amazing, right, in terms of uh, visual uh, fidelity. So. Again, and if it's out of the box capable of doing that, then you can optimize against it. So that's a pretty strong thing for next gen. Um, and then the last thing is adaptive triggers and haptic feedback. I honestly think this is not all that interesting. I think Switch uh, has this feature and it's, it's not really leveraged in any meaningful way. 
Um, but nonetheless, it's just another feature again for, for the new systems. And then what doesn't matter is the 4K Blu-ray, Ray, I totally agree. Um, anything to do with 8K is absurd and ridiculous. Even 4K is almost ridiculous at this stage. Um, it's the second thing, um, game aware interface. I don't even know what that is, but it's stupid. Um, and then uh, choosing game modes to install, which is another feature that they talked about, which is interesting, you know, for Call of Duty, you can install the multiplayer and the single player separately. So I don't know, reduce amount of um, storage issues. I don't know. But anyway, I, I thought this article was pretty good. I think it kind of nails the big points. Um, and the biggest feature in my mind is the SSD. You know, it's it will make a big, huge difference in terms of load times. And 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 the, theoretically, you can optimize against different ways of, of opening bigger worlds so you'll get more content, more things on the screen, et cetera. So it, it could be a big, big distinction going forward. Um, however, <laughs> what I'm worried about is that this, the capacity, because SSDs are still expensive. You know, if you do a 500 to a terabyte SSD, I mean, that's just too expensive for a 400 to $500 device. So I'm thinking that this is going to be some kind of hybrid system um, where, where you have a traditional hard drive as well as the SSD, but I'm not really sure um, on how that's going to work. Because again, if you want to increase storage on SSD, you need to get another SSD. You can't do a traditional storage device, but maybe the, anybody tech out there that knows this better than me, let, you know, let me know if I'm wrong on that one. So anyway, my overall take on NextGen is that these devices seem very iterative, general, generally speaking. Um, the, with the exception of the load times, they're almost identical in terms of structure and systems as these existing consoles. And actually the differentiation between PS4 and, 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 and Xbox One are very, very limited as well in terms of um, architecture. And I think these next-gen consoles are even closer together. Um, so what's interesting to me is that um, what will, maybe potentially hurt um, ongoing sales of these consoles is because the initial year, these are going to sell off the shelves and these will be fine. But cross-platform cross play will actually create a system. I'm trying to articulate this. Cross-platform play is really interesting because if you buy Call of Duty next year on PS5, you should be able to play with all your friends with PS4s. That's, that, that is the feature that they are likely going to do. And if that is the case, the impetus, the reason to buy a next-gen console will be far less because you can still play with your friends without spending five, four, five hundred dollars right? Now, this is irrelevant for the first year because everyone buys these things. These hardcore guys will spend whatever it takes. But on year two and year three, this could be a risk in the sense that you don't need to move to next-gen to play with all your friends, right? Um, and the other big deal on this, this next-gen is it's not a clean slate the way it was for... Um, for uh, the last two generations. So Microsoft won the Xbox 360 generation, Sony won the PS4 generation, and this time there's not really a clean break, right? Because you can basically, the cross-platform play will allow you to play on both games. So it's actually more relevant whether you're an Xbox Live subscriber and, or a PSN subscriber than which hardware you have. So in this, in this sense, Sony has an absolutely massive advantage, particularly early in the cycle. Um, so, Generally speaking, what I think is going to happen is that Sony's that the, the, these console adoptions may be a lot slower than last gen. Last gen was a huge uptick in in adoption really fast. This may actually be a little bit slower, similar to uh, the PS3 and Xbox 360 cycle. And but I don't think it matters as much because at the end of the day, everyone's going to have the same console, the same platform, and the publishers are going to 
make games for for both platforms uh, for for the foreseeable future, and and it could it, it should be good for all the publishers in general. Um, so and then I again the other thing is I think Microsoft's going to make some big moves with content that that help differentiate their platform over the long term of the cycle, and so they may lose early, but they may come back and 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 be more competitive and in. in future years. So that's kind of my quick take. I hope it made sense. Um, what do you think, yeah, Adam? Yeah, um, my take is going to be much more about like dev facing features. You're talking mainly about consumer facing. Um, just because I think th this platform play, it's going to be iterative, but some of the stuff that I really would push for, um, and it probably doesn't have to happen right at launch, but needs to happen is just to be a bit more future facing and cut out as much of the advantage that say Stadia and Switch have um, as much as possible. Um, big thing is just figuring out ways to manage the updates of these games, removing the friction for service-based games, which are definitely gonna be increasing in market share. Um, so every single time I wanna play a game, I don't have to wait hours to download a small patch. Um, cross-save and cross-play as you talked about um, as a feature and I know this is probably not going to happen at the Sony level they are not invested in making that simple um, but every service will actually need to start creating their own so I would expect sort of th third-party services to start offering uh, cross-save ability to make sure that people can jump between Xbox and PlayStation and PC um, also noticing with PS5, a lot of stuff under the surface around uh, better integrations for content creators and streamers. So there is like these assist plays and these types of things, uh, which could be quite interesting. Um, so far, like the share button from PS4, good, but I just think uh, we, they should be improving there. Um, as well as kind of improving their overall streaming software. So that's just the ability to stream from your PS4 to say your laptop or tablet. Um, I've actually been using this quite a bit. Um, I really enjoy it for the same reason that uh, Paul enjoys playing TFT on his couch. Um, that it's nice to be able to take your game um, elsewhere. And especially when I think about the advantages of Switch, being able to take your game um, wherever you are in your house. Right now, the PS4 tech is definitely lagging um, behind, say, Microsoft and uh, definitely going to be behind Stadia. So it would be good if they invested in that. Um, biggest thing that I would be pushing for with this generation, and I know it's something small, but I'm really surprised it's not in there, is marketing tracking, specifically in their store, uh, things around attribution around uh, their store. Uh, all of these service-based games are going to be coming out. There's going to be more and more free-to-play games, and it's almost 2020, and this isn't a thing for both Xbox or Sony. Uh, and this is this is major. So being able to actually do performance marketing for these service-based games in comparison to mobile uh, is a major thing. Um, but yeah, all, all my suggestions are very much about being dev-friendly uh, in a service-driven world, which is very much likely the future. JK? Yeah, so you know, I don't have much to say here. I guess great news for Anthem owners in terms of the SSD drive, though, right? <laughs> in terms of the load times. But um, Who, who's playing Anthem now? <laughs> <laughs> what? Who are they? I would love to talk to one. Of them. <laughs> um, but actually, I, I just have one question for for Eric. Eric, like, what is it? Do we have any news in terms of what's what's going to happen with Nintendo in terms of a new console? Because it seems like with these small incremental improvements on the Sony and Microsoft side that this, this might actually be a huge opportunity for Nintendo to kind of come in and, um, you know, make, make a lot bigger, bigger noise here and, and potentially gain share. What, what do you think about those guys? All right. You heard it here first. Okay. This is, this is my gross speculation 
with absolutely no, no, not true. I have some evidence, but I kind of think that Nintendo is going to go off platform and they're going to start creating content for Microsoft and Sony potentially on their systems. I don't know how much hardware they may maintain their hardware, like for the switch or for some kind of portable device, but I don't know if they're going to be doing uh, as much work on the console side. So um, that's my prediction, but almost pure speculation, (laughs) but I would not be surprised to see Nintendo content on next-gen consoles. That's all. That's what I'll say. And I, and I, there are some data points that I've gotten that kind of are indicating that that may be the case. So I think it's huge for Nintendo. Um, yeah, if, if that happens. But this this might actually be the, you know, I guess you could, my point is I think you can make an argument that based on these small incremental improvements that the basis of competition may actually shift to exclusive content in terms of a console platform choice. And so this might actually be a good time for them to just double down as well. I, I don't know. I don't know about that. I, well, yes and no. I think um, Sony clearly has an advantage on the content side, like from from this 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 core audience. Um, and you're right. The one thing that makes Nintendo really valuable is the content is more mass market, and um, and it, so it attracts both the core and and the family. So it's super valuable for you know Sony or Microsoft as well to expand the demo. Um, but maybe and and you're right. I mean, if you if you if I if you if you had said this to me like five years ago, I would say you're a moron, right? Because that there's just no way in hell that Nintendo was ever going to release games on Sony or Microsoft. But I just think the world's changed, you know. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, I, I'm not going to talk anybody anymore. But let's move on to the next one. But I think it'll be a really interesting cycle from that perspective. Yeah, Mishka. Um, nothing on PS3, uh, PS5, PS5. Sorry. Are we talking about Call of Duty already or not? Let's let's talk about Call of Duty. <laughs> good, good. Finally, so uh, this has been a hot topic for for the couple of weeks. I mean, uh, just just um, yeah, just to update everybody. So. It had a colossal launch week, uh, racking up more downloads than any other mobile game in the history. So according to Sensor Tower, the game reportedly has achieved over 100 million downloads, is going live at the beginning of the month. And that's pretty much the same number when you look at the uh, the app Annie data. And for example, just to have a comparison, PUBG Mobile had 28 million downloads in its first week, but its rollout was staggered across different regions. And the mobile version of Fortnite, meanwhile, was downloaded 20. 2.5 million times, but that was only available on iOS first. So we also have to take it into account that Call of Duty hasn't yet launched in China. Uh, but personally, I wouldn't hold my breath for that because of all the regulation permitting permitting most of the new entries and especially the ones with violence. And Call of Duty is quite violent. I mean, you just run around and, and murder people. So I don't I don't think that one is getting approved anytime soon. Uh, and the article also points out that the Call of Duty Mobile was developed by Tencent's Teamy Studio, which was previously known for the biggest game in China and probably one of the biggest games in the world called Arena of Valor. So pretty much like League of Legends Mobile, uh, quite close. Uh, anyway, so uh, my summary for this would be is that we talked a lot about mobile games revenue distribution in the last episode and call of duty actually follows largely the distribution we discussed so call of duty has currently three different apps uh, there's the call of duty mobile that most of us are playing and that's the the version for the west uh, then there's a 10 cent version of call of duty and that is for the korean market and then there's the agarina version for the tier three market which probably includes southeast asia 
and um, uh, Latin countries, so Brazil and others. Um, at the moment, Android has 70% of uh, the game is installed 70% on Android and 25% of the revenues is coming from Android. So pretty much like distribution we talked about in the last episode. And iOS brings 75% of the revenues with about 30% of all the installs. And if you start breaking it down further, looking at the countries and, and revenue per installs, you can see that United States is, is the number one country for this, bringing 46% of revenue. And maybe a little bit surprisingly, Japan is number two with 16% of all the revenues. And US is 70% of the downloads, Japan is only four. And as other notable countries, it's actually pretty big in Thailand. So Thailand is the fourth top grossing country where Call of Duty is, is, is currently with a revenue per installs at 85 cents, which is actually 20 cents higher than it is in US. Uh, Indonesia is also pretty high up in the top grossing with a very small revenue per install, but that's, um, yeah, that's what you would assume, as well as Brazil, which is uh, Garena Free Fire's uh, home turf. That's also in the top 10 gross. Mishka, just to be now, clear. When I compare, yeah. Mishka, we're talking about $400,000, yeah. right? This is like mice nuts, right? I mean, I just want to be we're, clear. Like the scale of revenue is is is, 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 is you know is they may be driving you know <laughs> sorry they may be on the top of the charge but they're driving four hundred thousand in revenue right yeah I wipe my butt with four hundred grand you know what I mean? <laughs> all right all right that's a, that's a that's a really expensive ask Eric but <laughs> listen we're talking about the early trend so let me compare it to the PUBG's first revenue so I know you're you're so against this game and it should be making uh, you know billions off the bat but when you look at the uh, U.S. revenue per install numbers. It took them three months to reach the same what what Call of Duty has at the moment. Japan, you know, it's pretty high with the revenue per installs, you know, compared to other countries, and it took them a month to reach of Call of Duty numbers. And Thailand took more than a year to reach where Call of Duty is currently with revenue per installs. So, but Eric, you're right. Uh, I play this game a lot. I play it every day, and I have been playing it every day since it launched. And buying doesn't feel great in Call of Duty. There's no really incentives to buy anything. You know, pop-ups are not really incentives to make a purchase. The gameplay is fantastic. I can't stop playing. My friends can't stop playing. We're, we're just mad in love with this game. And playing together is great and rewarding. But I think going forward, you know, I added tons of charts and whatnot to this, to this podcast. But going forward, they need to focus on monetization. I agree 100% there. And, and personally, I see, I see the way where subscribers are... are you have to give something extra. So if I'm purchasing a battle pass, just the skins, which are, you know, not that interesting and gun skins and so forth, like that doesn't, that doesn't make me, you know, go crazy. I need to have an access to something unique, something that other people are not getting access to. And currently you're not getting that with battle pass. And I think the battle pass is, is just not working as well in this game as it could. So Going forward, because the core gameplay is so good, I think they have a they have a chance. They have a strong chance, but they just need to focus on monetization. So over to Eric, uh, in terms of Jacob. time. Sorry, in terms of timeline for uh, PUBG Mobile, there was like a long period of time where they couldn't even monetize. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm just wondering yeah. about like when we're lining up these two games and we're looking at the RPI curves. Right. Yeah. Um, like US was like five cents during the first month of their RPI. But I'm wondering whether that was just kind of their launch schedule. Cause like here, here in this case, like call of duty mobile came out with everything, battle pass, all these cosmetics, all mm-hmm. from day one. Yeah. Versus in the case of PUBG mobile, like they didn't even match this feature set at all. Yeah. I mean, that's, I'm, that, I'm actually kind of comparing it to Fortnite because Fortnite was 
feature complete. I forgot that it wasn't on Android. I'm idiotic, but but the, the, the but and so like iOS is generally a better monetization um, than uh, Android. But I think the very simple way to think about this game is just that downloads look extremely good. But yeah, you know, I think we're all agreeing that uh, from an ARPU perspective, and especially when you look at the shape of the curve, it's it's definitely, oh, I know. definitely is, a problem. It is flat as a pancake, right? So, so <laughs> yeah. I'll just do my quick thing. So uh, comparing it to Fortnite, basically they were doing like 38 cents at this point uh, per download, but on a much lower download. So they had a 30 million downloads instead of 115 million and versus a 20 cent RPI that, that we're seeing from, for, from uh, Call of Duty so far. So you know, about half of the uh, monetization within the first few weeks, right? So that's not good. So, but putting this in perspective, you th a successful game like Pokemon, dude, they, they were doing like about the same amount of downloads, 100, 100 million downloads. They had 140 million in the first 21 days versus 22 million for Call of Duty. I mean, it is like dramatically different ball game here. Like they're not monetizing for shit compared to, to, uh, to Pokemon, you know? So... Anyway, so then if you kind of extrapolate, if basically if uh, Pokemon makes like 800 million by the end of the year by adding different features and doing what they need, live ops, et cetera, and you extrapolate that for Call of Duty, then they'll be at 120 million, right? I mean, and I know it's not a fair comparison, but I'm just saying that this is a different type of scale that we're talking about, right? So the only thing that scares me about my expectations is that the company keeps saying during beta and is that they had really high retention. So to the extent that they can actually add new content that people care about. Cause right now it seems like no one cares about any of this content and they can start growing their RPI. So we start to see the curve actually go up instead of flat, like a pancake right now. Um, you know, then maybe, maybe I'm going to be wrong, but right now, um, you know, call of duty, modern warfare is coming out this week and that'll move a chunk of that audience over, uh, you know, the spenders anyway. And, uh, I'm feeling pretty good about my prediction and, uh, I will be, you know, I think 150 million to 200 million is probably, where they'll end up could be worse if, yeah. if they don't I mean, really improve. And, but even with strong retention, I mean, I, I think on a comparative basis, if you're comparing to Fortnite, like that's a game with strong retention, right? Mm -hmm. so, yeah, right, right. So, so even with good retention, you, you still do have to worry about the monetization potential. Um, and, and, and this is another th thing with the cosmetic stuff, right? And I know the Riot guys are probably going <laughs> to not agree with me. It's like, this, this like, this is why these games are not monetizing. I, I, mean, I said this like months ago, is that it's not as compelling to buy, you know, a brown fatigue versus a green fatigue, you know, hat, right? Versus buying, you know, these characters in Fortnite, right? Like there's nothing on the store that it compels you the way they do on Fortnite, right? Like that, that's what makes it compelling. And so, and I think Riot does a good job with League of Legends as well with all the skins. And I'm not as familiar as I should be probably, so I should shut up, but... But um, but then you translate that to something like a, a a shooter, like they're trying to do, or even even a, a RPG. You know, like it doesn't work. Diablo type game. I don't know how how cosmetics economies are really going to work in those type of games. And I think that's exactly why it's not as compelling. You know, I you know the anecdote of one. I asked my son, is you know, do you feel compelled to spend it? And he's like, no. And, you know, there's nothing to spend on this stupid game, even though he loves it. Right. So anyway. Okay. Yeah, sorry, on the cosmetic stuff, right? Like, look at CSGO, right? CSGO is significantly, like, monetizing very, very well off cosmetics. And I think Call of Duty's done a very good job. It's just here, as you said, like, it's just a matter of content. It's not like they don't have the ideas for content, right? They have decades of Call of Duty um, of selling cosmetics there. 
It's just that they're they're actually just selling weapon camo with weird colors so far. And they need to actually do like geo geometry impacting major changes to their character skins, as well as like very, very high color contrast weapon skins. So if you look at some of the top selling weapons from Call of Duty over the years, it's been the stuff that animates, it's been the stuff that like is so ridiculously bright and gaudy uh, that players jump all over overpaying them. And I'm very surprised that they launched the game without anything like that. Right. So just, just a couple of quick points from me, and then I'll hand over to you, uh, Adam. But uh, I, I think the one thing that I want to mention is just for people to be careful about evaluating games just based off of the top line or, or download numbers. I, I, I think the true health of a game is just really hard to determine, right? There's going to be companies that push stuff, you know, this is a 10 cent Timmy game. And so, you know, I, so while it's, it, it's been sort of like the, the most successful launch from a downloads perspective, you know, my feeling is that because this is a 10 cent Timmy game that um, there were, there were likely a lot of downloads that were uh, sort of, sort of guaranteed in that mix. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of, I, I think this is a really interesting, so the second point I just want to make is that this is a really interesting a game to look at because when we think about the difference between Call of Duty Mobile relative to, to the other games and, and and why their ARPU curve is so flat, despite from a features perspective, it's all there. It's it's it seems like the biggest differentiator here is really has to do with um, you know with the core loop, right? They've got all the features. They've got both the tactical shooter side. They've got the battle royale side, but you know you know PUBG, Fortnite are more oriented in terms of the core loop around the battle royale mode and so is that the key difference is that what is causing you know this sort of um th this sort of lack of monetization i mean i don't play it enough so i don't i don't know but um you know definitely an interesting game to kind of kind of uh, look at from from that perspective no Adam? i i i definitely think it's a content problem uh, i don't think it's i don't think it's i don't think it's a focus problem Okay. Um, right. Like I think it's actually kind of refreshing to play old school Call of Duty multiplayer modes. Um, right. Like that's kind of the differentiating factor. I, yeah. I think it's it's fundamentally it's a content issue. They don't have enough cosmetics that matter in there and they don't have any ways to spend outside of the battle pass. And the battle pass is not even compelling on its own. Yeah. Adam is right. I play this a ton and he's absolutely right. That's that's exactly the player's perspective. Cool. Let's move on to the real <laughs> to the real Call of Duty. <laughs> uh, so Call of Duty Modern Warfare uh, Activision um, put out a blog this week um, talking about Modern Warfare and their post-launch approach to new content uh, which is talking about their monetization and live plan so uh, the summary of it is that Modern Warfare launches this week October 25th um, and there's actually been waves of backlash during the pre-order period uh, with players speculating how the game will monetize in typical Call of Duty fashion, they've been very tight-lipped. Activision has been very tight-lipped, even while leaks appeared that said that they'd be selling weapons inside of loot boxes. Uh, but just this week, Activision announced what the post-launch monetization would be, uh, and it will be a battle pass with only cosmetic items, and that will be the only way to, like that's the only post-launch monetization besides some cosmetic items in their premium edition. There won't be any loot boxes, uh, there won't be any weapons for sale and none of the gameplay impacting items would be purchasable at all, would not be in the battle pass. Um, on top of this, all maps post-launch will be absolutely free. Um, so in the past, they've sold map packs as part of the premium editions uh, and then cosmetics would be uh, their MTX. 
So to put in perspective, the typical pattern for Call of Duty games are that players speculate what the monetization will be before the game launch, causing backlash and additional PR. Um, and then Call of Duty launches with little to no monetization, uh, usually just map packs and cosmetics to start um, with a little bit of premium currency. And then around Christmas, Activision takes the gloves off and actually starts putting weapons inside of loot boxes and tweaking the odds outside of the review window, uh, really tweaking up the formula. Um, so the question is, is why this year are they straying from that formula? And are they actually going to stick with this contract throughout the year? My take is Black Ops 4 looks like it was actually down in overall revenue, especially on the live side. So part of this decision um, has to probably do with just how well that performed. Um, in that case, Black Ops 4 had a kind of a hybrid between loot boxes and battle passes. And part of it, um, it just looked like it wasn't retaining as well as previous Call of Duties. And it was likely because of the competition. And I think that's really what is happening this year is Call of Duty is making a retention bet. Uh, it's the biggest game of the year and probably will do a ton of units, but they are scared of Apex, PUBG, Rainbow Six Siege, Fortnite, actually eating into their DAU late in the launch year. So they want to retain that player base and are willing actually to step away from monetization. The difficult thing will actually be to retain them, right? Fortnite and Apex are throwing everything at live ops. So if you look at their schedule right now, new maps, new characters, big events, and Activision will actually have to launch far more of their substantial content than they've ever done before to make sure that they can sustain against these games. So my guess is that as we watch this game launch, if that DAU actually starts to fall, Activision will probably go back on this player contract and start cranking up monetization quickly. Um, just because I think even with this blog post saying no gameplay impacting gear, I don't think it's outside of Activision's realm to start tweaking this stuff, um, getting in between some of the wording uh, and actually start adding gameplay impacting gear to things like the free check of the battle pass or potentially just add loot boxes anyways. JK? Yeah, I don't have any comments in terms of the game. I, the only comment I have is with respect to the industry. Like, what a great time to be a free-to-play monetization or design person or a live ops person for a console and PC right now, right? Like, it's it's sort of like the Wild West. And if you are a person like that, like you, Adam, or, or Paul, it's it's. I just think it's such a fantastic time. And, and, and guys like you guys are going to be in such high demand right now. So I, I, mm. I just, just want to make that industry sort of comment. Um, Paul, you have any comments? I th just overall, like, I come to kind of cod later in, in my life. I think it's cool that they're doing the uh, cross-platform as a player just because it grows a competitive pool. And if there's enough people for you to frag with every day, then you're going to be playing every day. If you're going to be playing every day, maybe you'll spend. So I think that's just smart from just a general player-focused and business-focused feature. But we'll see. It also seems like they got a lot to cover from last year. Last year's launch seemed to go not as ideal as they'd like. So I think they have to build some brand equity back in my opinion. Um, but it seems like they're taking some of the right product specs. But as Adam was saying, like there seems to be a pattern, like we're cool for the first few months and then we turn on the, you know, the, the, the faucet there for business value. So it'll be interesting to see what they do and how they trade that line. So I'm just curious as a player really. Oh, I, I'm, I am a hundred percent sure they're going to have to turn back on loot boxes. I mean, <laughs> I, give me a break, right? I mean, this is the same issue that uh, call of duty mobile is having is that it's just not compelling to spend right. on, on the cosmetics and call of duty as it is in other games. So 
loot boxes are another source of revenue uh, chase, you know, that, 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 that people enjoy. And that's why Apex still has it. That's, right. I mean, anyway, um, but Call of Duty this year is going to be huge. I think it could be uh, the best-selling Call of Duty ever, potentially, because Black Ops 2 still has that moniker, um, particularly in, in overall grossing. Um, but it's up 10 to 15% from last year's Black Ops. And, um, but I still don't think they figured out monetization. I still don't think they know what they're doing. And despite, you know, all their efforts, uh, they're still struggling to figure out how to make money on this thing in, in a meaningful way. I mean, they make decent money, but not as much money as they, sh they should, I think. Um, I have heard that they will have a free-to-play version of Blackout uh, mode with a new map, you know, a few months after launch, a few months after launch, that, 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 that's ready to go. So that may help as well to increase engagement and retention. Um, and again, I think you guys have it right, is that they were super disappointed with the monetization last year um, and again, retention. So they, uh, there are too many free games out there, right? <laughs> with the very gameplay and features that are better, right? I mean, Apex is just a better game in, in a lot of ways than, than um, what Blackout was. Uh, and, and, and that took a big section of their audience away. And I don't think they did particularly well. And given all the challenges the studio has, um, you know, this could be actually the best. This could, I'm not, I'm not predicting Armageddon here, but I'm saying that this is probably gonna be the highest selling game in the series and likely next year will be down relatively significantly, you know, because the next few of Call of Duties are gonna be rushed and, um, you know, made by the two teams that are left at, at Activision, uh, Treyarch and, and um, Infinity Ward. And with Sledgehammer kind of just getting decimated, it's going to be a real challenge for them. So, and then also next year, we should see another Battlefield game, which will compete directly. So this is their last, like, kind of, uh, this will probably be their biggest release in a long time. And so I think uh, I mean, it'll all be really positive over holiday. But let's see if they can maintain the audience. I mean, that's, that's their, have, has been their biggest challenge over the last couple of years. So we'll see. And I agree with you, Adam, you should get over there and fix their shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's get some pros in there. I don't know who's, who's running the show over there, but it's certainly not Adam. <laughs> Stop trying to get me a job. <laughs> I'll get kicked off this podcast. Um, no, I, what I'm actually really curious about is like the actual metrics and of course nobody activision would ever say this stuff right but you're saying like monetization and retention but those two things are pretty linked right like if they're looking at monetization in the scope of ltv then it's probably actually really a retention issue and really a dau issue and that's what my sense is if they went with this change where they um are really like trying to aim for battle passes then i think it was a bigger problem around retention and dau than it was around monetization on say a per day per player basis Got it. The, the, the thing with the, the, the analysis that I put together was, and I don't know if I've said this in the podcast before, is that when they were doing DLC and map packs, they were making about the same money per user as they're doing with their microtransactions, right? And so that's not a good thing, really. Like they should be doing better, right? And, and, and I think part of what you're Part of it is a retention thing. I think the, the, the map packs in, the, in themselves were a retention mechanism because you release them over a period of time, bring people back into the game, et cetera. And maybe these, I'm now I'm just speculating out of my butt, but like maybe, maybe the, the, you don't get the same type of re retention. Um, 
sorry, you don't get people coming back as much for the for the uh, co cosmetic and, and all this uh, um, free to play stuff, you know, I don't know. Anyway, I, again, they haven't figured it out, right? They're not they're not good at this stuff. So I think they, they have a lot of work to do to, to make it work. And I think it's gonna be a real struggle for them going forward, because I don't think their studios are going to be really all aligned all that well. So anyway, we'll see how they do. <laughs> I think we're done. Wow. All right. That was a long one. Say a big thank to Paul. Yeah. Thanks, Good work, Paul. Paul. Did you I get shocked thank you, Paul. at all? What? Did I get shocked? What? No, no. <laughs> Joe was just looking at me with the dagger eyes. But no, this was awesome. <laughs> I really appreciated being on here and getting to hang with you guys and chat. I loved it. So thank you. All right. All right. If they allow you, we'll definitely have you back. <laughs> <laughs> if I still have a job, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, good luck. <laughs> Thank you. All right, cool. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.